Daniel chapter 4 this morning. Daniel chapter 4. For those of you who are our guests this morning, we're studying through the book of Daniel. And as I say each week, and I will continue to say through, uh, throughout the entirety of this study, uh, what we find in the book of Daniel, the overarching theme, the most prominent theme that we should walk away with at the end of this time together is, is not the prophetic, is not uh, the heroicism of Daniel and his friends, but is this beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God. Uh, and as I was studying this week, I can't remember which uh, author it was, but it was just this reminder of the fact that the sovereignty of God is something that we need to be reminded of on a daily basis. It's one of those things, and it's one of those doctrines that is uh, perhaps the most important for us to be reminding ourselves of daily, is that God is sovereign. Uh, and you think about how many things that helps us to overcome and to cover in the events of, the, of, the, of the events of our life. You think about when good times come, we're reminded of God's sovereignty so we're not filled with pride and arrogance and thinking that we did something. Uh, we think about when difficult times happen, and we're reminded of the fact that the sovereignty of God is what's going to carry us through those moments, that because He is sovereign, He will carry us through those difficult times. He will carry us through those moments of challenge. So the sovereignty of God, reminding ourselves of this each and every day. Daniel chapter 4 is an interesting chapter because, again, it's a chapter where Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And so this other dream is one that, again, he needs to have interpreted. He needs to have that wisdom of what this dream means conveyed to him. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the whole chapter, but I'm going to start as we stand together. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to skip to verse 28 and read to the end of the chapter, but we'll cover the rest of those verses in our time together this morning. So if you're able, stand with me. Daniel chapter 4, again, starting at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty are His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. Now, let's go down to verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows upon it whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eye toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom." 
and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. You can be seated this morning. The first thing I want you to notice in this passage this morning is found in verses 1 through 3, and that is the king's proclamation. And really what this serves at is an introduction to the entire chapter. Now, what's different about chapter 4 compared to what we studied before is chapter 4 is an account of a series of events that are all actually given to us from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar himself. What happened here in chapter 4 was so profoundly impactful on the life of Nebuchadnezzar that he wrote all these things down and actually had it distributed out throughout the empire, throughout his kingdom, for everyone to hear and to read and to understand what he had gone through. He wanted everyone to hear. He says there in, in verse two, or excuse me, in verse one, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. So this, this was to be sent out to, to all the known world at that time that they may hear and understand what had happened in Nebuchadnezzar. But not just what happened in Nebuchadnezzar, but what God had done through Nebuchadnezzar in order that he might have had his life changed in such a way. Verse 2 says, It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. I want you to notice that phrase there, Most High God, because it's the first time we see it used here in the book of Daniel, but we'll see it used some six times throughout this chapter. And what's significant about this phrasing and about this word, Most High God, is what this title refers to. This title specifically refers to God in His sovereignty. It's a title that specifically refers to the sovereignty of God and how he operates in that kind of power. What's interesting is it's the same phrasing that's used in the book of Isaiah when we have related to us the story of how Satan fell from power and glory in heaven. He says, I will be like the most high God. And really what we find there in the book of Isaiah in Satan's attempt to overthrow God is Satan desired to have something that was not his. He desired to have the glory that only belonged to God. Now, it's important to note that because we find in the Scriptures that God will not give His glory up to anyone else. His glory belongs only to Him. And that's going to be a symbolic theme all the way out through what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Because what we see in the life of Nebuchadnezzar is a man who desired to have, again, what only belonged to God, and that was the ultimate glory. He, he decides and he understands that he wants all glory and honor ascribed to himself. But he's going to find out that that only belongs to God. So what we find here in these opening verses really kind of sets the mark. But what we find here is a man writing after he has experienced all these things. He, he's writing from, from behind having had all of these things happen to him. And so it says, it seems good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God, there again, speaking of this sovereign God, has done for me. Brothers and sisters, when God works in our life, it is good to share that good news to others. When God does something in our life, it's good for us to share it with others, number one, because it brings glory and honor to God. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who we've already seen who desired to have all glory and honor given to him. But now he is desiring to give all the glory and honor to God. 
for what had happened in his life. And so should it be with us. When things happen in our life, we should desire to tell it to others to glorify God. And secondly, because it's an encouragement to others. It's a challenge to others. Nebuchadnezzar is writing this because all the glory belongs to God, but he wants to encourage other people. Don't do what I did. Instead, follow God and give the glory to him. Don't suffer the same things that I had to suffer. Instead, learn from my experience. And in this room this morning, we have a wide variety of people from a a wide variety of backgrounds. And all of us have experienced different things. And sometimes we can question in our lives, why did God allow me to walk through this season of life? And that can even be true of the things that we did before our conversion. Why would God have allowed this to happen in my life? I wish that I could go back and change it. Well, we can't go back and change the past. But what we can do is use the past and the things that happened in our life to still bring ultimate glory to God. The things that you've walked through, the things that you've experienced, you can do the same thing as Nebuchadnezzar is doing here, is encouraging others to see the glory of God in the fact that he brought you from where you used to be to where you are now. That he used those things to transform your life and ultimately sharpen your dependence upon him. Notice what he says there in verse 3. Again, this is just his opening proclamation to those who would read this account of what happened to him. He says, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now you're going to find this same phrasing repeated at the end of the chapter. Really, this whole chapter is bookend by the sovereignty of God. From beginning to end, it's all wrapped up in this beautiful description of how sovereign God is in his rule and his reign. But we now can obviously see just from these opening three verses that something dramatic has happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life. How how could it be that a man in these opening chapters that we've studied so far was so superficially praising God, right? He would give God somewhat the glory, but only in ascribing him in some kind of other polytheistic deity that goes alongside of all the other gods of Babylon, but not really giving him full glory. A man who was filled with pride and arrogance How could we come to the place where now, seemingly, he is recognizing the truth of who God is? And in his sovereignty, in his power, in all of his signs and wonders, all the works that he does, that his kingdom is a kingdom that will not pass away. It's an everlasting kingdom, and it's a kingdom that continues to spread broader and broader from generation to generation. How could this be? Well, we're going to find out. This is what this chapter is all about. Nebuchadnezzar is writing this as his own personal testimony of the work of God in his life. So secondly, I want you to notice the king's troubling. And so in verses 4 all the way down through verse 9, Nebuchadnezzar relates to us that he had another dream. I want you to notice verse 4 there. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a warrior. He is known for that. They conquered many lands and nations. But Nebuchadnezzar was perhaps more well-known for his architectural accomplishments. Uh, during his time, he knew, built the great hanging gardens there in Babylon. It is said that he restored some 15 different temples that had been in disrepair all throughout the nation. He built two great walls around the city. Uh, he rebuilt uh, a different temple, the, or the temple or the palace of Nabopolassar, and then also built a second palace, supposedly, by all records, in 15 days one that was connected to the hanging gardens there in Babylon. 
And even today, where Babylon was, it's a, it's a region that is rich in archaeological resources as, as those workers continue to dig up things and find things related to the kingdom of Babylon. So he was a man who had accomplished great architectural feats. He's sitting at home, he's sitting in his palace, and he's in a time of great comfort. It's a time in his life where he has seen his kingdom grow. He's seen his kingdom be established. He has plenty. He has success. He has happiness. And here he is sitting at home, relaxing, thinking about all the things that he had done. Now, a large amount of time has passed since the events of the previous chapter in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego there in the fiery furnace. In fact, it's probably some 30 years later that we are finding this account here this morning. So a lot of time has passed. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom has continued to grow, and so he is now comfortable in his life, comfortable in the things that he's done. But notice there that he's sitting at ease. In verse 5, says, I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So just in the moment when he thought everything was good, just in the moment when he found himself at ease and comfort and plenty, suddenly something began to terrify him. Matthew Poole said, God doth justly make Epicureans and tyrants uneasy in the midst of their fool's paradise, where if the fool says in his heart, there is no God, he shall soon find in his heart to think otherwise. It's in those moments where those who think that everything is good, that everything is fine, they suddenly find out the fact that it's exactly the opposite. They find out truly who God is. Nebuchadnezzar was troubled by these dreams, so he did exactly what he had done before. Verse number six, so I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. He called them all then. He, they related out there in the verses, the magicians, the diviners, the conjurers, the Chaldeans. And this time he doesn't ask them to tell him what the dream was. He only wants to know what the dream meant. But again, they failed just as the first time they failed in being able to interpret the dream. They failed this time to be able to interpret the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Finally, in verse 8, he calls Daniel in. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him. So after all the other wise men of Babylon had failed, he called again upon Daniel to see if he could perhaps shed light on the meaning of this dream. Now, you may ask, right, with past experience, with, with Nebuchadnezzar knowing that the last time this happened, he had to walk through all the wise men of Babylon who could offer him nothing and finally ended up with Daniel who was able to interpret the dream. Why would he not first call upon Daniel to interpret this dream? Well, most commentators believe that it was because Nebuchadnezzar already had a pretty good idea of what this dream meant. The dream begins with a large tree a large tree that spread out over all the earth. And in Babylonian philosophy and also in, in Far East philosophy, trees oftentimes stood for great leaders and rulers. So Nebuchadnezzar probably understood that this tree that he saw in this vision symbolized him. And the things that happened to that tree during this dream began to worry him and terrify him because he also understood what it meant for this great tree to be cut down. So what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is instead of calling Daniel first, because he knows that Daniel will tell him the truth. 
He knows that Daniel's not going to cut any corners. He's not going to sugarcoat what the dream means. So instead, he calls all of these other wise men of Babylon to come in because what he's hoping is, is that they will give him a different interpretation of the dream. They will give him a different perspective. And so he can put his mind at ease that what he knows to be true is perhaps maybe not true at all. So he calls Daniel in last. But Daniel comes to him in order to give them this interpretation. I want you to notice, though, a couple of things in verse 8. He says, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. So we can find still at this moment in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he has not yet recognized who God is, because he points out the fact that Daniel's name is Belshazzar, according to the name of his gods. He was named after the god Bel there in Babylon. And he says, the spirit of the holy gods, both of these referring to this polytheistic perspective that Nebuchadnezzar had. Right? He understands that Daniel serves a God who is able to help him understand visions and dreams, but he does not yet recognize that God as the supreme God over all the earth. He does not yet recognize that God as the supreme being and the only true God. He just wants to add Daniel's God alongside of all the other gods of Babylon. He wants to still be able to attribute the power that Daniel has somehow underneath the deity of the Babylonian gods. So he calls Daniel in. He says, I know that you have a spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I've seen along with its interpretation. The king, again, is troubled. He's worried. He's fearful. Again, he knows in his heart what he thinks this dream means, and it's not good for him. It's not good for the kingdom of Babylon. It's not good for his well-being. And so he's fearful as to what Daniel is about to relay to him. Now, we can only imagine what Daniel's perspective would have been in this moment, again, being called before the king after all of these wise men have already been before him and failed to do what they could do. Now, Daniel at this moment is not in fear for his life as he was the first time, but he no doubt knows that perhaps what has been given to the king is a difficult message because none of the other interpreters were able to give it. And he knows that it's a message that's been given to Nebuchadnezzar by God. And he's watched the king. He knows the king. He knows the king's actions, he knows his behavior, he knows his mindset, and Daniel knows that much of what Nebuchadnezzar has done has been in opposition to the truth of who God is and what God calls for men to do. Now verse 10 down through um, verse, uh, excuse me, verse 18, relate to us Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now it's repeated a couple of times in this passage, both in the declaration here and in Daniel's interpretation and then in its fulfillment. So I want us to read through this here just so that we can get in our mind the perspective of what troubled Nebuchadnezzar so much, what it was that was bringing him such great grief as he lay there at night. Look at verse 10. He says, Now these were the visions in my mind as I was laying on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt on its branches, and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. And he shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet 
leave a stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it, in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beast of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it upon whom he wishes, and sets it over the lowliest of men. So here's the king's dream, right? And it seems to be somewhat of a strange dream, right? There's a large tree, and the tree continues to grow and spreads out over all the earth. The, the leaves on the tree are beautiful. The fruit is abundant. There's plenty of it. There's food for everyone who comes. All the beasts of the field are finding shade under it, getting out of the heat of the sun. All the birds of the sky fill its branches, and all the living creatures feed themselves from it. It's a beautiful picture. And again, as I said before, in, in this type of, of philosophy and thought, a tree would represent a great deity. It would represent a great ruler or a great authority. So Nebuchadnezzar probably, again, saw himself in this tree. And as, again, as he looked at his life and he looked at his kingdom, it seemed very logical. He had already been told before, previously, that God had given him and granted him this authority and power that he had because it's God who raises up rulers and God who takes down rulers. So if God has raised up Nebuchadnezzar for his purposes and given him this great kingdom, God can take him back down again. And this is the picture of what we find here in this passage. Because as this tree stands here in its beauty and its strength and its power and its provision and its sheltering and everything that it is, suddenly an angelic watcher, an angel says to cut down the tree. And not just to cut down the tree, but to cut off all the branches strip off all the beauty of its leaves, all of its fruit, so that all those who are being provided for, being sheltered, being fed, have to scatter and leave out. But there's an interesting thing there because the stump is going to remain in the ground. And there's going to be this band of iron and bronze around it. And then it says, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let his mind be changed from that of a man to that of a beast. And this is perhaps where Nebuchadnezzar began to get even more worried. Because the tree chopping down would be symbolizing of the loss of his kingdom. But now it says that someone is going to be given from the mind of a man to that of a beast for seven periods of time. But I want you to notice here, the most important thing that we find here in, this interpret or the, in the declaration of this dream is found there in verse 17. It says, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, so it comes from a messenger of God, and the decision is a command of the Holy One, speaking of God, right? In order that the living may know. So here is the message, right? Here's the message that the dream is meant to give to all those who are alive. That the Most High, and again, there's that word, Most High, speaking of the almighty sovereign power of God, is a ruler, or is this ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it upon whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream is all about teaching a lesson to Nebuchadnezzar about the sovereignty of God. It's all about teaching a lesson to Nebuchadnezzar that all the glory about what happens in his life does not belong to him, but belongs to God. Nebuchadnezzar is about to be taught a lesson. And brothers and sisters, it is a lesson which we should all pay careful attention to as well. 
We need to understand who God is, but we also need to understand that he deserves all the praise, the honor, and the glory. We are very tempted sometimes even in our own life to hold the glory that belongs to God to ourselves. And so there's a great warning here that we need to understand that everything that happens in this life, be it good or bad, comes to us through the hand of a sovereign God. But all the things that happen to us in life, all the glory and honor belongs to him. So I want you to notice the king's warning that is given to us, because now Daniel has been tasked with, interpreta- with interpreting this dream. The scripture tells us that Daniel immediately knew what the dream was about. It was an instant revelation from God. As the king related this to Daniel, he didn't have to go off and think about it. He didn't have to ponder it for a little bit. Instantly, Daniel knew the interpretation of the dream. And we find that in verse 19 because it tells us that he was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. And what this means is that Daniel is, is so cognizant of the fact of what this dream means that he's stunned for a moment. He stands in silence before the king, and there's really a couple of reasons for that. Number one is he, he loved the king. As odd as it may seem for us to think about Daniel as a servant of the Most High God and Nebuchadnezzar being this this polytheistic wicked ruler of Babylon, Daniel dearly loved Nebuchadnezzar. He had worked in his kingdom. He had served alongside of him, and he loved him. He desired for it was good for him. So he was saddened by the news. He was disturbed by what is happening. And we can understand that because he tells us in the end of verse 19, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Daniel's love for the king is demonstrated here because he says, I wish this dream, O king, were not about you, but were about your enemies. And the things that are going to happen to you were not going to happen to you, but to happen to those who hate you. But there's probably also a second reason that Daniel was hesitant, was that he was unsure of what the king's response was going to be. Again, Daniel knows Nebuchadnezzar. He remembers that some 30 years ago that he had thrown three of his friends into the fiery furnace out of his anger because they would not bow down and worship his image. And now Daniel is given the task of, of, of interpreting this dream that does not speak very highly of what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, And so perhaps he's worried on what Nebuchadnezzar is going to say. We can understand this because there in the middle of verse 19, it tells us that the king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. He's basically telling Daniel, don't don't hesitate to tell me what the dream means. Don't, Don't be fearful to let me know what it means. I can handle it. I can take it. You don't have to be afraid to tell me what the dream is about. So verses 20 and following give us the interpretation of that dream. So let's spend just a couple of moments as we look at this. He says, The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and visible to all, the foliage was beautiful, food for all, and the beasts and the field who dwelt under it, and the branches of the birds of the sky lodged. Look at verse 22. It is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar was correct in his understanding that this tree was him. And this tree was this symbolic thing of showing how great his kingdom had grown, that it stretched to the ends of the earth, that the, the empire of Babylon stretched to the furthest parts of the known world at the time. And because the kingdom was so strong militarily, so it was strong, so strong uh, financially, that all of these people were under his control and under his power. 
And he was providing for all of them. They had shelter. They had protection. That means that they were protected from the enemies from the outside. They had food. They had plenty to eat. They had lodging. They had all that they needed inside of this kingdom. And it had been all underneath the rule in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. It had become great, it says, and reached the sky, dominion to the end of the earth. This was, at least at this point in time, the greatest empire that had ever existed here under the rule and reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So this was the good news, right? We always want to start with the good news before we give the bad news. Daniel starts by saying, you're right, O king, this, this, is, this is who you are. This is the kingdom that you have been given by God. This is what has happened. You are this majestic, powerful tree. But then Daniel has to deliver the bad news. And as I heard a preacher say one time, Sometimes the faithful preacher, not sometimes, but the faithful preacher must always give the good news along with the bad news. You can't separate the two. It would not have been faithful for Daniel just to talk about how great Nebuchadnezzar was without interpreting the bad news of the dream. And brothers and sisters, it's not good enough for us when we talk to someone, we can't just tell them about the hope of Christ without also talking to them about the severity of sin and the disjudgment that we deserve because of our sinfulness. The good news must come along with the bad news. Verse 23, he talks about this angelic watcher. This would have been an angel, a holy one descending from heaven, who begins to say, cut down the tree, but yet leave the stump with a, with a, a band of iron and bronze around it. And then let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field. This is where Daniel has to get into the difficult interpretation. He says, you, O king, he says, this is the decree of the most high. Again, notice again, most high, which has come upon the Lord. He says that you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. And you will be given grass to eat like cattle and drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows upon it whomever he wishes. So what this dream is talking about, the overarching theme of this message was that Nebuchadnezzar would be removed from power. He's going to be removed from his throne, but he's not going to be removed in a way that we might expect, right? A, a, an opposing force is not going to come in and overthrow the nation of Babylon. There's not going to be a political uprival inside of his own kingdom and somebody's going to overtake his throne from the inside out. Instead, the scripture tells us that Nebuchadnezzar is going to become like a beast of the field. Most people believe that during this period of time, he suffered from some type of mental condition or mental disorder. There's, in fact, one that's still known today where a person believes that they are an animal and they act like an animal. So for seven periods of time, it says Nebuchadnezzar is going to be like a beast of the field. He's going to be like an ox specifically because he's going to be eating grass like cattle. Scripture goes on to tell us later on in the, in the fulfillment of this that his hair grew long like the uh, feathers of a bird and his nails grew long as well. It would have been a very astonishing sight to see this man who had been this great ruler of Babylon living out in the wilderness somewhere with this long hair and these long fingernails eating grass walking around in the wilderness. But God was going to humble Nebuchadnezzar. God was going to humble him until when? Until a point, right there again in verse 25, 
until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it upon whomever he wishes. Daniel is very clear to Nebuchadnezzar. God is going to do this, Nebuchadnezzar, until you come to the place that you recognize that God is sovereign over all. God is going to do this until you come to a place that you submit your pride, your arrogance unto him, and you stop trying to steal the glory that only belongs to God. Now, there's different interpretations of what this seven periods of time mean. Some people say seven years. Some people say it's seven months. Some people say it's seven seasons. We really can't determine that from the Scripture. We don't know. All that we know, it's seven periods of time. I tend to agree with what Sinclair Ferguson says, is that it's most specifically the perfect period of time in which God ordained, right? Because seven is the number of perfection, and so God knows the perfect amount of time that it's going to take to bring Nebuchadnezzar to this place in order that he will turn from himself and glorify and honor God. So it could have been seven months, it could have been seven years, it could have been seven seasons of the year. We don't know. But we do know that an extended period of time is going to pass where Nebuchadnezzar is not going to be ruling and reigning in Babylon, but instead wandering out in the wilderness like a wild animal, eating the grass of the field with his hair and his nails continuing to grow long. So this would have been difficult news for Daniel to deliver. It would have been hard news for Nebuchadnezzar to hear. But I want you to notice in verse 26 that there is a demonstration of God's goodness towards Nebuchadnezzar. It says, And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. So all this is being done to bring him to a place where he recognized and truly confesses that God is the one true God. And with this dreadful news came a blessed promise that after this tree was cut down, the stump was going to remain. And so this symbolized the fact that God was not going to fully take the kingdom of Babylon away from Nebuchadnezzar, but he was going to leave the roots there in order that after Nebuchadnezzar fully comes to the realization of who God is, that he will restore him back to this kingdom, that he will give this kingdom back to him. Now, Daniel's heart again is relayed to us in verse 27, because notice what he says. After giving the king both the good news and the ultimate bad news, he says, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break now away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Daniel, immediately understanding what's being declared here, pleads with the king to repent immediately. He says, turn from your pride and your arrogance and turn to righteousness and showing mercy to the poor in order that God may show mercy and grace upon you. Daniel's love for the king was immediately, he says, King, let my advice be pleasing under your ears. Stop doing what you're doing. Repent. Turn to God. Don't, don't even allow this to continue any further, that God might show you mercy and grace. But unfortunately, it was a plea that fell on deaf ears. Because I want you to notice next with me in verse 28, the king's fulfillment. Verse 28 says, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. That word all there in this all this specifically talks about the perfect fulfillment of everything that God had proclaimed. 
So it says 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. We need to understand that when God speaks, it will come to pass. When God says something, it's as good as done, even if it has not yet occurred. And so a year passed from the time when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream to this moment. But the knowledge of that dream had obviously had no real effect on Nebuchadnezzar. Or perhaps it was the fact that because 12 months had passed and the Lord had showed him some grace that Nebuchadnezzar believed that the Lord was not going to fulfill his promise. And so he became hardened even more in his sin. Instead of recognizing it for this warning, he now said, oh, well, God promised this, but yet it hasn't happened yet, so I'm in the clear. Whatever the case may be, the king had only grown in his pride and arrogance. Remember, just a couple of verses earlier, Daniel had pleaded with the king to turn away from his pride and arrogance and submit and humble himself before God. But what we find here in verse 30 is that the king has continued to grow in his pride until finally we have this really this culmination or this climax of the most prideful person that you could be. Because it says, as the king stands on the royal palace of Babylon, he looks out and says, is this not Babylon the great? which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. I want you to think about what Nebuchadnezzar is saying here. Look at those words again. Which I have built by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Now remember what God had told him? He says, until you come to recognize that it is the most high God who deserves the praise, the honor, and the glory. Here Nebuchadnezzar has reached about the furthest place that you could be away from recognizing the power of the most high God. Because here Daniel, I mean, here Nebuchadnezzar is calling all praise and honor and glory to himself. He says, I have built this. I have done this. I deserve all the glory. Now notice what happens. Verse 31, it says, While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. It's like a parent catching their kid with the hand in the cookie jar, right? You walk in there and they've got, and as soon as you speak, they're caught in the act. Because it says that as the words were still in Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, God spoke down his fulfillment upon him. The words had not even finished coming out. You can even imagine Nebuchadnezzar standing up there, full of pride, full of arrogance, full of himself, standing up there. Is this not Babylon that I have built for the glory of my majesty? King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that sovereignty has been removed from you. Immediately, God spoke in judgment. Again, we find the fulfillment of this because he speaks the same things. You'll be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle for seven periods of time. Look again at verse 32. Here we find this repeated phrase. Until you recognize that the Most High, the sovereign God, is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately. The word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away and began to eat grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. 
until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his, bird, and his nails like bird's claws. Immediately, it says that God spoke while the voice was still in the king's mouth, and immediately this was fulfilled. God's judgments are right on time. They may seem delayed to us. They may seem prolonged to us sometimes, but they happen exactly when the sovereign God determines them to be most correct. So here's this great king. All of these wonderful things that he's done, all these wonderful things that he's built, and immediately God has cast him out into the wilderness to live like a wild beast in the midst of the field until he recognizes that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. In verse 34, the final thing I want you to notice here in this passage, which is the king's transformation. Verse 34 begins with that word that oftentimes signifies to us that something is about to happen. But, all of this has happened, he's been cast out, but... Nebuchadnezzar says, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? There's a beautiful moment here because Nebuchadnezzar finally comes to that point. After this seven periods of time has elapsed where he recognizes who the Most High God is. I believe in this moment what we see here is a true conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. Because it's not a superficial statement anymore attributing the God of Daniel alongside of the other gods of Babylon. In fact, there's four things that I want you to notice in this passage that I think testify to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar here truly come to know the true God of all the universe, the Most High God. The first is that he had a right focus. It says, I raised my eyes toward heaven. He was no longer looking at his empire. He was no longer looking at all the things that he had done. He was no longer looking at himself, but he was looking up to heaven. And we know that by the Scripture, looking up into heaven is this symbolic thing of talking about recognizing who God is. He's no longer looking at himself. He's now looking into heaven. So Nebuchadnezzar's focus had changed. He was no longer about who he was and what he had done, but recognizing the fact of who God was. Secondly, he had a right heart. He says, my reason returned to me. He had been acting like a wild beast for these seven periods of time. But now his right reason, his sanity returned to him. Now he understood things that he had not been able to understand before. Now he was able to grasp things that he had never been able to grasp before. He says, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. He had a right motivation. The proper response of one who has been transformed by God is to give God the praise, the honor, and the glory. 
Nebuchadnezzar was not going to bless the Most High. And again, notice there, there's that phrasing again. We've heard Nebuchadnezzar in the past give glory to God as another God alongside of all the others. But now he says, I didn't bless the God of Daniel. He's not phrasing it in such a way as to, to symbolize it and, and separate or segregate it off. He says, no, I blessed the Most High. Because if God is sovereign, what is he sovereign over? He's sovereign over everything. That means he's sovereign over all the affairs of men. He's sovereign over all the events of life. He's sovereign over all the gods of Babylon. He's sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar himself. He says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. He now had the right motivation because he recognized exactly what God had promised him that he was going to come to recognize. That it was the Most High who ruled over all. It was not the gods of Babylon. It was not Baal and the others. It was truly the God of Daniel. And fourthly, he had a right recognition. The end of verse 34 shows us that he recognized that God rules forever. It says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Well, why is this important? Well, remember, this is exactly the reason that Nebuchadnezzar decided to erect a statue. Because Daniel had prophesied that, that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, because it was just the head of the statue in his dream, it was not going to be an everlasting kingdom. It was only going to be short-lived before it was overtaken by the Persians, and then by the Greeks, and then by the Romans. So Nebuchadnezzar decides to build a golden statue to signify that his kingdom is without end. Now Nebuchadnezzar realizes that his kingdom is not without end. But there is one who has a kingdom without end, and it's the Most High God. That Nebuchadnezzar could not conquer the entire earth. His dominion was not forever or an everlasting dominion. But God's kingdom, the Most High Kingdom, was an everlasting dominion from generation to generation. It was a kingdom without end. God rules forever. But he also recognized that God rules over all. Look at verse 35. He says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. That means that God has complete power over every person that lives on the face of the earth, whether they submit to him or not. Whether they acknowledge him or not, God has power over all. They cannot say anything to him. Nebuchadnezzar also recognizes, verse 35, that God does what he wills. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God will do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And there's not a person on the face of the earth who can cease or cause him to not do what he wants to do. There's no great military power. There is no great political leader. There's no great spiritual leader who has the power to tell God that he cannot do what he wants to do. And there is no one on earth who can question God in his sovereignty. Now, we may try, but none of us have the power to truly question God as he does what he wants to do. We do not have the right to say, God, why did you allow that to happen? He allowed it to happen because he's a sovereign God who knows what's best. He allowed it to happen because he is a good God who will do what he desires to do. And the final thing that Nebuchadnezzar recognized here, skip down with me to verse 37, is that all God's ways are true. And that God will exalt the proud and God will humble the proud and give grace to the humble. 
He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the true King of heaven. For his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. What a, what a glorious proclamation, right? He says, I now exalt and honor the King of heaven. He says, for all his works are true and his ways just. Even after suffering and going through all that he's gone through for this past period of time, Nebuchadnezzar now comes and says that even after all that, he says, I recognize that God's works are true and his ways just. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't look back and say, well, God, perhaps you were a little too harsh, right? Did my hair really have to get that long? Did I really have to eat grass like a cow? Did I really have to live out in the wilderness for this seven periods of time? No, Nebuchadnezzar looks back and he says, Thank you, God, because your ways are good and just and true. And Nebuchadnezzar here is praising the fact that God did this to him because he said he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar recognized how proud and arrogant he was and what God had to do to humble him. But he celebrates the fact that there is no one so proud that God cannot humble him and bring him to where he needs to be. And brothers and sisters, that's glorious news. It was glorious news for some of us that there is not one so proud that God cannot humble and bring where we need to be. But it's also glorious news for us as Christians as we look out at the world and we see what's happening in the world around us. It can be tempting to look at certain people, certain situations, and think, well, what can God do? Well, God can do whatever He wants to do. And God has the power to humble even the most proud and arrogant person on the earth. Notice verse 36. Let's go back as we close. He says, At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me. For the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He brought Nebuchadnezzar to a place where he confessed the truth that the Most High God was over all. But God also fulfilled his promise that yet as the tree was cut down, the root remained and the kingdom was restored to Nebuchadnezzar. And not only that, as he restored him to his kingdom, he put him back in the same position of power and authority, reestablished his grace upon Nebuchadnezzar and continued to demonstrate his blessings upon Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. God had used Nebuchadnezzar in such a way and continued to use him now for his glory instead of Nebuchadnezzar's own glory. I want to close this morning by reading just a couple of phrases from Psalm chapter 18, which I think apply very poignantly to this. Psalm chapter 18. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself astute. You save afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. For you light my lamp. The Lord, my God, illuminates my darkness. Verse 35. You've also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. Verse 46. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and the exalted be the God of my salvation. And finally, verse 50. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. We see here in the life of Nebuchadnezzar the beautiful sovereignty of God in the midst of a man who was so prideful and arrogant that he thought all the glory in the world belonged to him. 
It'd be very easy to look at Nebuchadnezzar and think, well, that man will never trust the Most High God. Look at all he has. Look at all that he's accomplished. Look at all that he's been given. He'll never trust the Most High God. But God had a purpose for Nebuchadnezzar, as God had a purpose for each one of us in this room, and as God has a purpose for many others. And because God is sovereign, he will do what he wills, when he wills, to whom he wills. And he will accomplish it according to his praise, honor, and glory. Father, this morning, we thank you for this time and your word. We thank you for your word for our hearts. Lord, I know this week that I've been deeply encouraged by just that continued meditation upon your sovereignty. And Lord, I know as Reformed believers, it's sometimes very easy to just use that word haphazardly in so many conversations that sometimes perhaps we fail to recognize the beauty and the significance of what that means in our life. That it's not just a trite term to use to say, oh, well, God will do what He wills because we don't want to have to answer the difficult questions of life. But Father, it is a blessed promise and encouragement to us to know that no matter what happens to us, nothing happens to us outside of your divine permission and your sovereignty. Even the most difficult moments of our life, Lord, are given to us through your hand. What a beautiful example Job's life is of that. So, Father, help us to trust in the gloriousness of your sovereignty. That as things happen around us, to trust and to know that you know what is best and that you're accomplishing your purposes. We thank you for the example of Nebuchadnezzar, of one who, although he suffered loss, he suffered physically, but Father, ultimately, he came to this place where he recognized who you are, the Most High God, the one who is sovereign over all, that he finally turned from his pride and arrogance to put his faith and trust in you, that you would receive all the praise, the honor, and the glory. Father, perhaps there is a person in this room this morning who is much like Nebuchadnezzar. They're living their own life. And all the glory of their life they keep to themselves. They do not give it to you. And they see themselves as the sovereign over their own life, doing what they want, when they want, how they want, for why they want. But Father, we pray this morning that their heart would be softened by the Holy Spirit to see the error of that way. That pursuing self and pride and arrogance and vainglory will only bring them to a place of difficulty. Will only bring them to a place of opposition from God. And we pray that this morning they would turn from their arrogance and pride and their sin and to trust in the glorious blessings and promises of a sovereign God. Father, work in our hearts this morning. May we be transformed by your grace. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.